Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am James Butler and 2018 has been in some ways an incredible year, uh, undoubtedly a politically significant one and full of the usual royal of idiocy and folly as well as perhaps some bright bits. Now joining me to look over the year as we commit it to its political grave are Michael Walker, host of Navarra Media's Tiski Sour, our weekly video show, which you can find on our YouTube channel and, of course, on the navaramedia.com website. And Dawn Foster, staff writer at Jacobin Tribune and Guardian columnist. Uh, <laughs> welcome, both of you. Uh, I hope you're feeling suitably full of the joys of Christmas as it bears down on us. Uh, I have been listening to some excellent, if perhaps melancholic, carols this morning to put myself in the right mood for the show. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of silly churn this year, as there always is in the political field and political journalism in particular. Uh, from Are we going to go through all the silly stories of the year, James? I think not, because we would be here for the month entire hour month. just on every piece of idiocy published in January. the press. <laughs> but yes, we've had had stuff from uh, Jeremy Corbyn is a Czech spy, right through to the omnipotent Russians. Uh, we can talk about some of that, of course, as mm. the show goes on, and I think we should. But maybe we'll begin by thinking about the year in wider terms, the great macro picture. Uh, so I my think it's a real tragedy that audience didn't get to see your hand movements when you uh, said yeah, well, no, it's quite it's, something it's to witness I am a gesticulator <laughs> uh, you can often you should picture me often when I'm talking as like, like milking the goat of knowledge with, with my hands um, Michael tell me, tell, me, tell me about what characterised some of the big stuff this year for you yes I think the big story in terms of British politics is, is that not much has changed which is surprising in a way. So if you think about the amount of think pieces you've read about how mm. people who can never support Labour anymore because they've betrayed them on Brexit, or potentially sometimes because of the anti-Semitism row that went on in the summer. Uh, but none of that's... And you've seen a similar thing with the Tories, although to a much lesser extent. But if you look at the polls, they've remained basically the same all year. Uh, the Tories and Labour are still neck and neck. It looks like we're in a very traditional two-party system sort of mode, mm. uh, which was established in 2017 and hasn't changed at all. And I do think that's quite surprising, especially in terms of Brexit. I think some of the reporting on Labour's positioning on Brexit is daft. But I think it's undeniable that the Labour Party have not prioritised stopping Brexit. So I don't think that's because Jeremy Corbyn is secretly a Lexiter. But I do think that if you had someone who was leading the, par leading the parliamentary party who believed that Brexit was the biggest issue facing Britain today, they would have acted slightly differently. And so to that degree... I'm surprised at how few people haven't switched to. I mean, the Lib Dems, obviously, they've got a, a leader who doesn't inspire much faith. But I mean, Caroline Lucas, she's been at the forefront of this pro-EU argument, really directly pitching to people who she thinks are sort of liberals, somewhat socially egalitarian, but prioritise really identity issues and issues regarding Europe. She's been pitching to them all year and we haven't seen a green bounce at all. So... Yeah, I suppose I'd say I'm surprised at how little change there has been in the fundamental support for, for the two parties, despite uh, the predictions that many mm -hmm. people in the mainstream media were making. Mm -hmm. and, and, and why? Why aren't people leaving the Labour Party for the Greens? Because, you know, by all accounts, I mean, if you read, read the media on this stuff, it, it, you know, you say it's not the biggest issue facing British, you know, in British politics. Uh, and I think that that may be true. Uh, and I think it's really instructive the way that there has been this response, I think especially recently. Mm. Obviously, we've had the the statement of the UN, UN Special Rapporteur on poverty, mm. um, you know, making very, very clear that there are some fundamental problems with the way in which the British, uh, British state and British society work. Um, but, you know, uh, so saying that the media probably has some influence on the way that people think about politics, and it has been wall-to-wall -wall Brexit this year... Uh, why, why has there been so little movement? Yeah, well, I mean, I was also making a weaker claim. I think for the next three months, probably the Brexit negotiations are the most, thing, most important thing that's going to go on <laughs> in the UK. Uh, so what I'm saying is, if you look at the polling, it doesn't seem like that's what the public think. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I mean, the reason why we haven't seen, say, a Green surge or a Lib Dem surge, I mean, the Lib Dem surge, it's, I mean, you can point to Vince Cable, you can point to 
I've forgotten his name. Who was it before? Who was the frog water uh, Tim, homosexuality Tim guy? Farron. Tim Farron. <laughs> he believes uh, uh, hormones in, in water or make, make, yeah. frogs, make frogs gay. gay and things but like if, that. If there were to be a move away from Labour by people who felt betrayed by their... Uh, dragging their feet, as it were, if what you're hoping they're going to do is stop Brexit. I mean, they are dragging their feet if that's what you want them to do. Uh, I mean, people can always point to the fact, oh, we have a two-party system. First past the post means that third parties never do very well. And that means that the people who are supporting Labour and the Tories are doing it reluctantly. But I mean, you look to 2010, 2015, we do have a two-party system, yes. But when people want to make a protest vote, they do it. Uh, No one thought that UKIP was going to win a significant number of MPs. They voted for them anyway. You know, no one thought the Lib Dems were going to form... Well, actually, some people did think the Lib Dems were going to form a government in 2010, and they were correct, <laughs> uh, which undermines my point somewhat, but you get the idea. Uh, <laughs> even though we have a first-past-the-post system, we have seen a history of third parties doing quite well when there is a genuine desire to protest against the major two parties, and that doesn't seem to be happening right now. Dawn, what do you make of that? I think it's down to the fact that, actually, for most voters, Brexit isn't the biggest issue. And so you look at what Labour are doing and it's focusing on universal credit, it's focusing on poverty, it's focusing on the housing crisis and that explains why. I mean, I think that when it comes to the Greens and the Lib Dems, as Michael said, you know, both of them are focusing very, very much on Brexit in the hope they scoop up people who didn't vote for, to, leave the, you know, to leave the EU. And actually, you know, those people do care about social issues and, you know, I think... M- both the Tories and Labour have been focusing on kind of home issues, social issues, things like poverty. I mean, the the way that the Tories are doing it is by pushing through universal credit and every now and then making a terrible kind of um, announcement on housing that doesn't do anything except prop up the housing, you know, the, the price of houses. So I think that most voters actually don't care that much about Brexit. And or just, ex- or you know, or, f- or just fully accept the result. Yeah. And I think that there is a focus on trying to overturn the um, the result of the referendum, and I think most people accept it, and that's the issue. What about? So we saw a lot both this year and the year before, and uh, seemingly interminably in the media. Uh, you know, this kind of cycle of, of commentators getting really, you know, thigh rubbing over the prospect of uh, a Labour breakaway, a split in the Labour Party, led sometimes uh, speculatively by Chuka Umuna or Chris Leslie or, you know, some of this, you know... Really uh, inspiring people. <laughs> deeply, deeply, deeply inspiring people. Um, that, that hasn't happened. Why? I think they realise that any breakaway isn't going to be electorally help, um, helpful for them. So if they do break away, they will end up in a situation that's even worse than what the Lib Dems are in at the moment. So even though you have a lot of commentators who say that there is a big desire for it, when you look at the polls, you know, Labour are doing actually quite well under Corbyn, uh, a lot better than they were under Miliband. And so a breakaway in the kind of Miliband tradition just like isn't going to fly mm. with most voters. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and you, you wonder where they'll stand, where they'll go. And there isn't really any seat they can stand in where they're likely to beat Labour. So yeah. it makes sense for them to stay in the party and stay in the, you know, Brixton seats or wherever Chris Leslie is, I have no idea. Nottingham, I think? Yeah, one of the Nottingham seats. Yeah, and, and I think any breakaway would actually just see them yeah. facing electoral oblivion. Yeah, yeah. Michael, so should we... Should we expect any of this to ever rise to the surface is, 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 or are they just going to be terminally gun shy the breakaway party idea yeah. I mean it's an interesting one I mean in, t- in terms of what should you do rationally as a politician it makes a lot more sense for Chuck Ramuna et al to stay in the party they have a lot more influence as members of the PLP uh, I mean I'd, I'd say unwarranted influence as members of the PMP, <laughs> PLP but I think if they were to break away they probably wouldn't win a mm. by-election uh, I mean why they haven't when at the beginning of the year they were sort of intimating that they would. Uh, I suppose one would be that, yeah, the polls are showing that there doesn't seem to be a huge desire for rebellion against the Labour Party. If the Greens were polling at 10%, if the Lib Dems were polling at 20%, I think probably these people would have been tempted to Mm. do a breakaway. I think the fact that that hasn't happened suggests it's not going to be particularly worthwhile for them to take that risk. I mean, at the same time, what's interesting and where where it might bubble up in the future is if we see deselections take place. But if you look at uh, this year's Labour Party conference as sort of like the first phase of that battle, uh, quite a radical proposal was 
was passed. It makes it much, much easier to deselect an MP than it was previously. And whereas sort of what I was expecting and what we saw in the 1980s was huge uproar, you know, people, MPs on the, across all the TV stations sort of saying, this is the final takeover by Trotskyists of this party. Uh, this is authoritarian Stalinism where they want to purge anyone with slightly different uh, ideological commitments to themselves. But that didn't happen. Um, so, I mean, at the moment, what it looks like, if you've got the Labour right who are biding their time, they don't feel like they have the electoral support to <laughs> form a separate party. They're losing all internal battles within the Labour Party and have just now uh, conceded a rule change which makes it much easier to get rid of them. So, I mean, it almost looks like I don't know, just like the slow euthanasia of centrist Labour. I don't know, I, I'm, I don't know when the fight back's going to come or if they've just given up and they're going to go get uh, decent paid jobs in the third sector. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Dawn, what else this year has, has, has really struck you in, in terms of big, overarching themes? Probably how little people understand about Ireland. <laughs> both in Sorry, Dawn. Yeah, both in North and the South. <laughs> Michael is not allowed to talk to <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it seems like I have spent a long time this year trying to explain different parts of uh, Irish politics, both in the Republic and in the North especially. People genuinely don't understand it. I mean, you know, you you, you, ha you have the the very obvious kind of, why won't Sinn Féin take their seats? Mm -hmm. Oh, if only they'd run to our rescue, we could sort Brexit. Uh, without understanding that they have been elected by people who are very, very clear that they weren't going to take their seats mm. in Westminster. And, you know, and it is it, it, it's a really, really childish fantasy that, um, of people who know very little about Sinn Féin, have, don't really care about looking into any part of the party north or in the, in the Republic and just see them as kind of uh, strange, a strange phenomenon that could run to their rescue, take their seats, mm, etc. Mm, mm, mm. And if you did, you'd have to, A, get the Queen to come down <laughs> and, uh, you know... Uh, do a kind of mini opening of parliament in many ways to let them take mm -hmm. their seats. But they're not going to do that because, hey, they stand on that, you know, very, very obvious platform. And everybody who's voted for them knew that. They were very aware of that. No, nobody voted for Sinn Féin and then, and then said, oh, dear, I thought they were going to take their seats mm -hmm. in Westminster. Mm -hmm. I've been duped. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is in some ways really striking, actually, the, the failure to grasp the, the importance of that sort of abstentionist platform mm. to Sinn Féin voters um, and you know r right the way back to, to Constance Markovich this yeah. is a, you know, uh, excellent uh, you know radical countess um, but you know for, for, for me it's it's it, there's also something that I think has endured on the English left in particular which is a sort of obdurate uh, and obstinate refusal to grasp anything about uh, Ireland and this is a this is something that that goes right the way back I think um, on you know, even on the the intellectual left, you look at the the back issues of major left journals, and you think right the way back to to the seventies, and then all through the troubles, you, you see very very little on Ireland mm. as a kind of you know awkward uh, question that people don't want to engage with, and I think there's a there's a long uh, story there about uh, England's first colony mm -hmm. uh, and the way in which that has. Uh, at the decline of England's imperial power, finally come back to bite the English. There's an ongoing thing as well where, um, you know, certain facets of, uh, of, you know, British politics do actually say to Irish people, you know, if it wasn't for us and World War II, you'd be speaking German. And, you know, there's a reason that people in Ireland are speaking English. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and conflict over Irish language laws, of course, were one of the, the major. Yeah, that uh, was a big thing this year yeah. as well, with you know the whole crocodile thing. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, but people also refuse to fully accept, you know, what the DUP stand for mm. and what they find important, etc. And the DUP have become very troublesome mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the for the Conservatives, and they clearly thought that. Going into a supply and demand, uh, you know, supply, you know, um, going into a deal with the DUP would be very easy. The DUP would vote whatever, however they, however the Tories asked them to. But 
you know, the DUP are very, very uh, obstinate mm-hmm. in all of these mm-hmm. things. And now it looks as though the Conservatives have lost their majority yeah. because the DUP won't vote with them on yeah. these things. Yeah, I mean, f- f- this sort of plays into, I think, one of, um, you know, one of my big, you know, themes of the year, which has in some ways been the question of Parliament, mm-hmm. all right? And so... Uh, and I guess in part this is a Brexit story, in part not, and and it's rare. And so, so it's been a confluence of factors, right? So it's rare to have a government as weak as this one, mm. um, and it's a sort of unique confluence of like a major constitutional change, i.e., Brexit, along with an unusually polarised House of Commons, as uh, Michael is suggesting. Uh, you know, and I think especially though, like with, with a Labour leadership more implacably opposed to making deals with the leadership of the Conservative Party than perhaps might otherwise be the case, along with the slim governing majority uh, propped up by this deal with the DUP, and and one in which, of course, post-2011 constitutional ground has shifted a bit, and and that's why we've seen, you know, one of the things most striking about this two-year session of Parliament has been what a legislative logjam it's been. There's Mm. been very, very little actually substantive legislative action uh, and and actually that that's that is quite unusual um and so it, it, it's left me thinking this year and, and regular listeners to the show will know i've been thinking a lot this year about the way in which british democracy functions about the way in which the state functions here uh and, and it struck me that that you know parliament has been for, for for some while now a bit of a dead letter it was a bit of a dead letter certainly under the early Blair governments, partly because of Blair's sort of enormous majority. Uh, And whereas this year we've seen it flex its muscles a bit. So it's been, for me, a kind of end of a sort of polite entente between the sort of major forces uh, in politics. And so we've seen the use of these kind of rather arcane parliamentary mechanisms to hold the government to account. Um, And that means, I think, that people are starting to think necessarily about ways uh you know about the way in which our democracy is set up about whether it's doing the things we need it to do whether it's not doing it how it might be defective um so obviously in one sense this year parliament has asserted itself by you know insisting on the meaningful vote and then pushing the brexit legal advice question uh you know and the motion on amendability of of um you know the the grieve amendment um and and all of these in some way highlight the sort of primacy and sovereignty of parliament so, and this is a phrase that gets bandied about a lot, but I think it's, it is an important one. Um, you know, it, it highlights the power that the ultimate power that ha- that Parliament has to constrain the government, to constrain mm. the executive. Uh, and yet, it also for me has highlighted the the powers available um, to the government to obstruct, to delay, to attempt to slither around. Uh, and uh, so, and that's been re- nowhere has it been more visible, of course, than in in the pulling of the 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 uh, meaningful vote, so-called meaningful vote. Uh, you know, and and of course, the other thing this year that might not have been visible to people, uh, and it's been true, I think, last year as well, is the matter of the Lords, and, which is like the weird, useless black box of British government, right? Like sometimes they do the right thing, but you can't figure out how it's happened. Um, no one. <laughs> you know, it's it's great when the laws do something useful, but but it's 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 not uh, a functional body. Uh, it's, it's sort of stuffed with no marks, like uh, these kind of weird chances. Digby Jones, um, who of course Dawn had an excellent <laughs> encounter with on BBC uh, News uh, recently, uh, <laughs> but also you know Lord Sugar, people like that. Um, so it's been a vehicle for patronage for a long time. Mm. Um, and, and and it says something I think about like the the, the nature of British Parliament is that the, you have these kind of bodies that have changed function and yet still exist. Um, you know, Britain has never had a kind of big constitutional moment uh, in the same way that say Revolutionary France did or the foundation of the United States of America. Um, you know, and and that that makes British government really weird. It, it has it means that it has these kind of archaic hangovers uh, and also has like actually pretty unconstrained power when you mm. look at it. And that to me has been very, very interesting this year. And it's brought up all sorts of issues around, uh, the, you know, the way in which British democracy works. And, it, you know, it's a question vis-a-vis the EU as well, because membership of the European Union necessarily has meant limiting the powers of the British Parliament in ways I don't think are necessarily bad. Um, but it's an open question now what that's going to look like uh, in a changing world. So how, has, how have you felt or have you thought about Parliament this year, either of you? Well, um, 
I'm going to do a slightly sideways answer, (laughs) uh, which is, I think, in terms of the question of why Brexit hasn't had a bigger impact on the party system, it's because for a year the stories have been about parliamentary procedure. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to follow, even if you are very interested in politics. I mean, it's like I often look at, I can't be bothered to follow it sometimes, and I'm relatively interested in politics. (laughs) So so the fact that sort of these parliamentary manoeuvres hasn't sort of inspired a huge... um, public engagement in politics and people mm. switching parties etc cetera, etc cetera, I think is is to be expected and yeah I, I, I think engagement with most of these issues is quite low I mean I remember one thing that surprised me this year was when the checkers deal came out and it, there was polling done and disapproval was sort of 52% approval was 18% and I was like do, do really that many people know what's in the checkers deal I mean, maybe they maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But, but I mean, we're talking about such technical things when it comes to Brexit. And I think where you potentially would have seen a bigger shift, sort of like the referendum actually mapping onto party politics, would be if uh, the Labour Party had, well, I suppose, backed Remain, and then you'd seen a sort of the the overlay of identity issues onto the debates that are going on in Parliament, whereas at the moment what I see is... is quite confusing disagreements about very technical issues, uh, which I don't think has that much feedback into uh, political opinions of the public at large. No, I agree. I think um, the only thing that really kind of inspired some public interest was probably the 1922 committee Mm. calling a confidence vote in Theresa May and like you know, the public wanted to see what happened when... But only as a soap opera drama. I mean, exactly, it didn't affect yeah, the polls. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It didn't, yeah, not, not remotely. But it was like a little bit of drama that was all over the TV for a while. But apart from that, it's been so technical that mm. just it's, it doesn't inspire anything. Yeah, I mean, so it, it, it's interesting for me as someone who, who tends to watch Parliament reasonably closely, um, you know, although sometimes, you know, I'm tempted to gouge out my own eyes while doing so. <laughs> mm. um, it reminds me of like a line that Bevan has in uh, Nye Bevan, like, uh, important mid-century Labour politician, has in In Place of Fear, um, which is his book of essays yeah. um, after after he retires from, from Parliament. Um, and he writes that... It, in one sense, the House of Commons is the most unrepresentative of representative assemblies. It is an elaborate conspiracy to prevent the real clash of opinion which exists outside from finding an appropriate echo within its walls. It is a social shock absorber placed between privilege and the pressure of popular discontent. And so, which is a great line. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that has that is striking or has been striking for me, certainly like over the past couple of days, but also this throughout this year, is, is the focus on... Uh, propriety and proper parliamentary procedure and whether you're rude or not in the House of Commons. Mm. Uh, and, and this stuff, you know, uh, it always seems to me to value the form uh, of political debate while devaluing its content. Uh, and, and that, to me, has been like the major line, uh, certainly from the right uh, and quite a lot of the centre over the course of the past year. I'll admit that um, obviously, so this week I ended up in hospital and uh, was completely out of it for two days because I was stuffed, you know, stuffed full of diazepam. <laughs> and when I came to, uh, you know, James came to hospital to collect me and I asked how politics had gone because I'd left my phone at home when I collapsed. And uh, He asked was, you, can you lip read, Dawn? <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, actually, like, so, so my friend Ronan <laughs> told me to take a lot of painkillers and then try lip reading. <laughs> Um, and it, it, it was it was absolutely awful to come to get out of hospital and find that the entire time I'd been unconscious in St Thomas's, um, people had been trying to lip read to find out whether or not Jeremy Corbyn said stupid woman or stupid people. <laughs> and it, I, who gives? Who, te- who cares? <laughs> who cares? It, yeah, it, it was awful. It, it, it was an as James said, it was an utter pantomime. Yeah. And I'm so glad yeah. I was, you know, pumped full of benzo so that I couldn't follow it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so the serious point though here for me is is like so, and one of the things I, I find very difficult when talking about Parliament, and talking about the way in which like British democracy works is that all of this stuff like constitution and parliament watching stuff like that has its real dangers and those dangers are that that kind of falling in love with its arcane rituals with mm. its pomp with the baubles with the formalities all of that stuff that's not why I'm interested in it what I'm interested in it is a question of how the left operates within its confines you know breaking the good chap rule of governance which is the thing that grabbing seems to, the mace yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's also, I mean, I should the left grab the mace. Yeah. The, left, the left should absolutely grab the mace. It's Every one the, day. One of the things that 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 that, that, that I admired John McDonnell for long before. Oh, that was wonderful. He was shadow chancellor when he grabbed the mace in a debate over Heathrow. Oh, um, I didn't know he'd grabbed the mace. Oh, yeah, he already. did. So, so, so watch the video because Jeff Hoon's talking, and you see Ed Miliband sat there looking really smug, <laughs> and then John McDonnell just runs up, grabs the mace, takes it back to his seat, and just does, yeah, what are you gonna do? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really nice little lesson in like how vile uh, lots of the kind mm. of lots of those people were like Jeff Hoon remember Jeff Hoon um, but yeah so th- there's that stuff but it's also you know I've been thinking you know inevitably one thinks about Westminster in relation um, to the devolved administrations as well and, and that's one of the things that's come under I think a lot of pressure this year and the year before there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha over the Sewell convention about a devolved legislature consent um, to, to Brexit in particular uh, and that came under a lot of stress this year. Um, obviously, the Northern Irish Legislative Assembly is still suspended. It's not going to come back. Yeah, and that's, this is uh, presumably a major problem that we that hasn't kind of blown up Because in it's been helpful to the Conservatives. Yeah. If, yeah. if it wasn't helpful, they would have pushed it. Yeah. And actually, you know, um, at the beginning of the year, DUP and Sinn Féin were ready to go back. And, you know, Sinn Féin agreed com- completely, spoke to Arlene Foster. And then the um, DUP Westminster MP said no. And that's why it didn't go back. And yeah. it's not going to go back as a result. Yeah. Arlene Foster just can't control the Westminster yeah. MPs. They have more power than she does. And, you know, yeah. you've seen it. Sally yeah. Wilson's been very, yeah. you know, very, yeah. very, very outspoken. They all have. Nigel Dodds. Yeah. Because they're all angling to take over from her. Yeah, so one of the things I want to look at actually over the course of the next year in terms of, uh, of stuff we're putting out is to think a lot more about um, the, the devolved administrations because inevitably it seems to me for, for any future Labour government there's going to be that question of the relationship between Westminster and the devolved assemblies, uh, the question of regionalism versus, versus independence, uh, mm. you know, the, the ideal of a sort of uh, archipelago-wide socialist federation, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, it will be a question, and and there are you know I think these 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 questions do lurk under the surface of a lot of the political chain, and and it, and it's good to keep an eye on them. Anyway, Michael, not domestically, Ooh. tell me what else has struck you this year. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I suppose probably the the two key elections of the year were Bolsonaro and the Italian elections earlier mm-hmm. in the year. I think, I mean, with Bolsonaro, it's too early to tell what will, what will happen. I think what's particularly interesting about the Italian election and what's particularly worrying about it is that since the Liga, the far-right party, entered government, they've massively increased their popularity. So mm. Matteo Salvini, who was leading the, the Liga Nord, well, they're just the Liga now, uh, they got 18% of the vote in the elections. They're now on 31 to 32%. And I think what this shows and what this has changed in Western Europe, at least, is that the far right aren't just a growing electoral force. They they don't just get votes and support by being an anti-political force or by being a protest vote. Actually, it looks like there are ways in which... I mean, it's only it's obviously it's only been nine months, so we can't say it's they necessarily have a strategy for governing and sustaining support for a long period of time. But, I mean, if you look at Hungary, that's certainly been the case. I mean, Hungary, you've had a Orban in power since 2010 now uh, with some fairly... Uh, unconventional economic policies. He's Mm -hmm. maintained growth. He's uh, maintained a rise in wages. Uh, He partly did that by nationalising the pension fund and paying off the IMF and the Eurozone so he didn't have to follow their diktats anymore. So quite a sensible economic policy in a way. Uh, So I suppose what I'm getting at is that there is a model that Salvini can point to, which is a very socially conservative and xenophobic politics above all else, um, and a somewhat populist economic strategy, Mm. uh, which is hostile to the EU, uh, which doesn't really play the same sort of responsibility politics game that the centre-left had been inclined to do Mm. in Italy and across much of Europe, which I think is where many of its electoral woes came from. And so if you see uh, a general election in Italy soon and the Liga become the dominant party, potentially he becomes the Prime Minister, I think at that point you see the far right as a serious axis in governing parties mm. in Europe. And that's a real concern. 
And and how do you do you see that as a, a dynamic playing out uh, against? Because so that's I mean so so this stuff is not the only story in Europe, right? You still you have you know substantial left presences, uh, certainly in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and Portugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still have at least a nominally left government in Greece. Uh, you have uh, uh, <laughs> you, you have some kind of like isolationist socialist social democracy in 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 the north of europe um so it's, so it's not the only story and do you see those tensions as starting to pull apart at the european union in in what in what respect pull so, apart so, at the european so union? these are these are these are two like fundamentally incompatible uh modes of governance right um and so far they've been uh absorbed by the fact that bringing any kind of political conflict to the european level is very very difficult mm-hmm. um but at the, but at the moment so at the moment like the, the big thing for me is the stuff that's coming out of italy saying uh you know where they have made very clear that it is utterly unacceptable to them for the, for europe to give uh latitude to macron to uh run effectively a, a deficit uh, a deficit above three percent uh, in order to buy off the Gilets Jaunes uh, mm-hmm. movement, while also acting as the EU does to Mediterranean policies when they try to run uh, a deficit. So that mm. seems to me to be like a serious... Well, ultimately it played quite well for Salvini. So they... they uh, did a, like, The reason there was a standoff over the budget was because there was a 2.4% deficit, which is below uh, what the... What's it called? The Fiscal Responsibility the Pact. Stability and Growth Pact. Stability yeah. and Growth Pact, uh, which enforces fiscal responsibility. Uh, so that says you can't have a deficit over 3% of uh, GDP. Theirs was below that, but it was higher than what they had, what the previous technocratic government had agreed with the EU, which was that there would be no budgets which are over, not, well, no budget deficits over 0.8% of GDP. They've gone back to the EU. They've been negotiating for a couple of months. And what they've agreed to is a budget deficit of 2.04%. So, I mean, that, that they can clock that up as a victory, basically. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what you're going to see with left-wing governments in Syriza, Spain, Italy, their relationship to the EU might be quite similar, which is going to be, can you relax some of our fiscal constraints? And I think if the EU see that the only other possibility is that you're going to push them into a completely Eurosceptic position, then they're probably going to mm-hmm. give away, at the, they're going to give away things at the edges. Um, so to the EU, I don't know if a, if a, if a right-wing government and a left-wing government look that difficult, d- different mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, if you're a migrant in one of those countries, obviously it does, <laughs> which is why even if the achievements of, say, Syriza or Podemos in coalition with uh, PSOE, the Socialist Party in Spain, seem limited in the extent to how ambitious they can be with respect to economic reform. The fact that if you're a migrant in Syriza, not in Syriza, (laughs) in Greece or Spain, there isn't a government that's constantly putting out Facebook videos talking about how people that look like you have raped someone, which is what Salvini is doing. So he's... uh, One thing I was reading about him, which... I think it's, it's helpful to think of him as a bit like a Tommy Robinson. He's got 3.3 mm-hmm. 3 million followers on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And daily he's making videos partly about sort of like, oh, I made this for dinner. And partly like this person was raped by this mm-hmm. migrant at this place last night. Why is nothing happening about it? So mm-hmm. that, that's like the real trope of the far right, uh, both in the United States and sort of Britain first. That's how they yeah. got big as well, which is just sharing crime after crime after crime done by a migrant, which obviously is not a statistically relevant thing. <laughs> it's not a statistically relevant way of displaying information, but to a consumer on Facebook, that looks like, wow, there's mm. so many problems going on. This is a huge endemic issue, a civilizational threat, potentially. Mm. I mean, that's that's the picture that's a- attempting to be portrayed. So, yeah, I, I feel like if, if that's able to get a foothold in Italy as it has in Hungary, that's really worrying. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to say about Hungary, of course, is that there are protests ongoing at the moment, against Orban and they're, they're of course being uh, painted as uh, uh, outgrowths of a sinister conspiracy led by George Soros who's like a, mm. a major hate figure for the, the right and the far right in Hungary um, but you know I mean, it, it just I think it's important to make clear that there are also resistances within these nation states and I think you know, we also had a Telegraph front page against you know George Soros. Yes, this year, yes, so. yes. That's important. To, I mean, the, the the prevalence of these conspiracy theories, um, you know, uh, becoming increasingly respectable among uh, the 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 right, who who aren't the kind of insurgent or, or scrappy mm. underdog far right. Um, and maybe maybe Dawn, 
what do you make of this the the claim not so much about Soros but the claim that that, that has been circulating a bit that that this is all Steve Bannon and his sort of uh, long reach because that's been happening a lot this year is that there's you know whenever a, a far right party mm. does well there's this kind of uh, reaching for an explanation which is Bannon right that Bannon is behind the the, the new international of, of, of fascism of the far right stuff like that is that a useful way of looking at it I think it it's a very very simple way of looking at it <laughs> which is probably why people go over you know go for it but you know I mean, the growth of far right has been coming for a long time, mm. and a lot of the um, a lot of the apparatus that was needed for that has been put in place. So, you know, I mean, it's very easy to for you know Tommy Robinson etc. here to grab onto what Michael talked about. So, uh, you know, look so disrupting certain trials, looking at uh, very, very particular trials. There have been a lot of grooming cases this year that involved white men, and they get barely any coverage compared to the handful of ones that involve, you know, Asian or Muslim guy or Muslim guys, um, because that fits the narrative that is needed. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of this, you know, the, the Tommy Robinson was around way before Bannon was. Mm. And... Um, and you know, Tom, he, he has been helped. So, um, what was the uh, organisation that kind of l- laundered him? Quillette. Quillium. Quillette is the far right yeah. rag that lots of people, including Nick Cohen, right? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So obviously he was part of the EDL, and then Quillium made a big song and dance about the fact that they had taken him, and he was, you know, he was better now. When actually all they did was to him and you know give him an even bigger platform so he's actually doing more than he was when he was in the EDL when he was in the EDL it was mostly kind of you know uh you know football thuggery around certain things whereas now that he has been laundered by Quilliam uh and was you know given a second chance so to speak he's become a lot more targeted and a lot more smart about how he uses his social media presence um, and that's been going on for a long time, and you see it with uh, with you know similar things like you know the way that Orban uses social media, and the way that the far right use it across Europe. Mm. It's very very easy to kind of game Facebook in this way now, and yeah. a lot of people are doing it. Yeah, I, just to, to to pick up then on on something because Michael mentioned Bolsonaro, mm. and one of the things that Bolsonaro has been really um, really big on is uh, the Amazon. Right, that he he he's very pro cutting it down and selling it, um, and I think this has been for me. It's been that that, and it has been every year, but it's been particularly pronounced this year. Is is a kind of deep sense of how bad the climate crisis is, mm. and and I'm you know I'm finding it you know increasingly difficult to occupy this this space where one is one is obviously concerned with the with immediate political and policy questions in front. Uh, you know, you know, in front of us. Well, at the same time, there's this kind of crisis going on a much, much larger scale. That that you know, that on the one hand is debilitating, and on the one hand it feels um, almost very difficult uh, to, to 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 kind of find a way to talk about it that isn't um, you know sort of self-destructive and, and paralyzing and very difficult. And one of the things that was most striking about that, is, that this year is that you know, one, we had of course. Um, our, our, you know, barbarously hot summer, um, which, you know, it does, you know, seem to me an opportunity to talk about climate change in a very tangible way. And I'm talking here not just that you got a nice tan or maybe sunburn, but that, you know, people died yeah. because it was so hot. Um, now, that alongside the IPCC report that gave us, frankly, a very generous 12 years to turn it around... Um, has meant that there is this there is this question that has occupied me all year about how you make a political force about climate change work, and it doesn't seem to me that 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 the idea of a state of emergency or like this sort of you know endless kind of uh, sense of crisis is necessarily very helpful there. Partly because you know that you know at this point we're looking not just at averting climate change but adapting to it and that seems to me to, to actually have to play into the questions of policy and the way in which you look 
at, at how politics works. So you can't have, um, you know, a, a, a climate change policy which is purely about, you know, upending politics such that uh, you don't use any political tool to deal with it. And obviously, you know, in part, my, my thoughts here are, are thinking with, thinking against, thinking through, like the protests that we've seen over the course of the past couple of months with the sort of Extinction Rebellion people, which as regular listeners know, I'm sort of ambivalent about, you know, I like it that people are doing something. I, I don't I don't trust, uh, you know, the, the strategy. But it does seem to me that there is, there is a, that, you know, that this is in some ways you know, the the biggest problem facing us and, and the solutions, you know, on the one hand, there is this kind of anti-politics approach that sort of seeks to upend everything that, that declares that, that there are no extant political tools to deal with it. It always seems to... And, you know, I, I, I say to people, the thing that most made me make peace with the existence of the state was I don't see another vehicle through which to deal mm. with climate change. Um but but on on the other hand, there, there, there is, and I think recently, and it's been a ca- it's been the case through the year, but it's really developed over the last couple of months, uh, like this big conversation in the United States about a, a new Green Deal, a Green New Deal, sorry, rather, um, you know, to, to to try and bring those issues of policy together with climate change to talk about jobs while also talking about uh, you know uh, a non carbon economy, um, and. You know, it's nice to see, but it also feels like not enough, right? And there is this kind of political question, like, so you use the the kind of powers of the imperial presidency if you get Sanders in to kind of, mm. you know, stop climate change by fiat. I don't think that's going to work either. So, so after that divagation, uh, what have you made of climate? Has it has it been on your mind this year? Uh, has it been on my mind? Let's let's depersonalise it. I don't think about climate change as much as I probably should. I don't <laughs> well, read, I don't I read that, about I it or tweet it, about think, it as much. I but, but, a, but I think you've, we've got a lot of material there. So I think it it has been put on in the agenda in a couple of ways. I mean, in terms of Extinction Rebellion, there have been some people complaining that Navarro have been overly negative about it. Um, I actually don't think we have. But. Well, I mean, my, my perspective to that is I don't think there's that much point in critiquing actually existing movements for not doing something else. I don't think that when, even though it's it's the tactics it employs is not something that I'm particularly interested in getting involved in myself, I kind of agree with you with this idea that sort of like extinction is going to happen soon. Even these IPPC warnings that we have 12 years left to take any action, I don't really know what that means because if we don't take any action in the next 12 years, we're not going to say, oh, well, there's no point in taking action now. Let's just mm. sort of chill out until we all burn and die. You know, so... so these time limits seem a bit odd to me. But at the same time, anything like Extinction Rebellion brings people into activism. I don't think that if they weren't doing that, they'd be doing lobbying or mm-hmm. becoming Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of the UK. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 if, when acting on climate change is so difficult, I don't really see mm-hmm. why it's useful for me to be critiquing people giving it a go. Uh, in terms of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Green New Deal, I mean, I think that's super impressive. I mean, you have to look at the... This is, she's a... 28, 29, I'm not sure how old now, but, you know, very young, first-term congresswoman who got elected against all odds. If you're going to take one issue, if you're going to pick one issue, you say, what's going to make me popular? What's going to sort of cement my position uh, in, in Washington and in the American public eye? You're in the United States. 47% <laughs> of Trump, Trump supporters think global warming is a conspiracy made up. Yeah. You know, so, so for her to take that issue and to run with it and for it to be quite successful I mean that's incredibly impressive and it does make you feel like potentially we have underestimated the extent to which something like a Green New Deal can be attractive I mean as 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 it's often said this is something that the Labour Party have somewhat dragged their heels on uh-huh. I mean even if the Labour Party had put someone who was as sort of engaging and inspiring as Ocasio-Cortez in that environment secretary position or DEFRA or whatever the position is now you follow Parliament. Who's, who's responsible for environment <laughs> in the DEFRA? Yeah. So that's what Michael Gove is. Mm. He's chief of DEFRA, is that what we call them? Chiefs? Minister. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Minister. If, if Labour had put someone in that department who was desperate to go on TV all the time, who had a real strong message about why there is an urgent need to tackle climate change and why transforming our economy into a green one can work for everyone, then I think we could be in a stronger place now uh, than, than we currently are. But I mean, I, I think there's reason to, to see some hope from this year. 
mainly because of that Green New Deal. Mm. Uh huh. Uh huh. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, I guess my my, you know, what gives me hesitancy isn't isn't the content of, of that policy, which I think is actually quite good. It's certainly better than uh, than we've been doing here. Um, but 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 it's that sense that 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 if we're going to live socialism, whatever, it will be lived in scarcity, which means that. That there's so, you know inev- invariably some d- degree of reparative work here, just intellectually on the you know uh, on the abstract, that, that that our basic political ontology changes because you, you, it's no longer a question just about um, you know machines and productivity um, and redistribution and common ownership, but it's a much more basic reconfigurations of, of, of assumptions about how politics works in uh, a world that has warmed by say two degrees. Really, really fundamental because it's not just um, a, a, about productive machinery, but it's it's about sort of you know about the fact of scarcity, about the fact of massive, massive um, population changes and population movements. So I think you know taking seriously what cl- climate change means is it's not it's not about like hiding in your room crying because the the world is dying. I don't mean that at all. I mean that the way we think about like some basic axioms of politics will probably have to change over the course of this century and I think that's that's really interesting and it includes things like nation states and stuff like that and so I think you know I think it's that level of, of fundamental uh, assumption anyway <laughs> shall we move on uh, I we have 15 minutes left and I want to come on to our villains of the year which we will and I just want to talk about a, a, a couple of things perhaps quickly first um, in terms of like big, again, big ideas of the year. And Michael, I know that you've been interested in conspiracies. I was looking year. into conspiracies, yeah. <gasps> Tell uh, me. I love conspiracies. Yeah, you know, just Wikipedia, Princess Diana. You know, there's just so, I, so, I mean, so much material you, to work you, with there. Michael, you do not need to tell me about Princess Diana, <laughs> conspiracy theories. I know them all. No, I think it was, it was an interesting topic that theory, came up true. from many a different <laughs> angle this year. Uh, one, the idea that sort of people are overly conspiratorial and that's why people mistrust the news because they've been led astray by conspiracy theorists uh, we saw like this me. like like dawn yeah <laughs> uh, we saw this in the Skripal case so the idea that anyone who was questioning the official government narrative which to be fair hadn't been justified properly I mean mm. it seems at this point probably Russia did it I don't know I'm not an expert on these things but the idea that anyone questioning that official narrative had become a conspiracy theorist mm. um, I think was pretty damaging I think one reason uh, that that happened is because we don't really have any mainstream newspapers in the UK that do adversarial journalism. Mm. Uh, so whereas once the Guardian would potentially have had a couple of journalists who are willing to at least dig holes or ask difficult questions of the government, that doesn't exist anymore. So all we have is people like Craig Murray. Um, who is bad. Mm-hmm. Some good points, some bad points, you know. Um, okay. <laughs> take, take each article on its own merits, I, I, is what I, I say. I, I will say that me and a couple of other journalists got into a lot of trouble by talking about Freemasons earlier in the year. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, yeah, I forgot about yeah. the Freemasons episode. Why were we talking about Freemasons this year? Because we found out there were three um, Freemason lodges in Parliament. Hey. And then we wrote about it and everyone went mad. Interesting. I mean, that is in, that, that, that there is an enduring question about mm. the British state and its, you know, you know and particularly the police mm. uh, and the police involvement in in fraternal associations outside the bounds where they can be constrained by official bodies, by HMIC, by stuff like that. And Freemasons are a classic example of those. And it's it's true, I think, uh, especially if you look at uh, you know the kind of dodgy stuff that went on seventies mm. and eighties. Um, you know, you know, big, big role there. I suppose to finish the point, sort of like yeah. issues that have come up with respect to conspiracy in 2018. So one is the desire of sort of like establishment journalism to try and silence any questioning uh, of official narratives as essentially sort of pathological and conspiratorial. The other is that social media has meant that we've sort of discovered how many weird conspiracy theories there are out there and how widespread they are. Uh, so we have seen this in some Labour Party forums. Um, many conspiracy theories sort of bleeding into anti-Semitism. Yeah. I mean, you also mm. see that in terms of the Gilets jaunes. Um, mm. I think the anti-vaxxers are quite a big deal in the Gilets jaunes yeah. as well. Um, and I mean, a question I always have when sort of like looking at these things is whether this was always the case, if this many people always believed this many wacky conspiracy theories, but we only now find out because of things like Facebook forums. I'm, I tend towards the idea that that's always been the case and just mm. we know about it more now. Um, but I think, I mean, you, you're undoubtedly seeing sort of... In, 
increased distrust in mainstream media and people sort of going down their own alleyways of thought. Uh, there was an interesting report that came out about conspiracies this year as well, which brings some of it all together. I mean, one thing it brings out, so this was done by Cambridge and YouGov. It was a mm. six-year poll reported quite heavily in The Guardian uh, that found that 60% of Britons believe in conspiracy theories. Um, I think that the report was totally undermined by including this as a conspiracy theory, which is the government... Oh, no, not that one. Ooh, that's the far right one. Uh, I read the wrong part of my notes. Uh, the one... Oh, this is the one. The most widespread conspiracy belief in the UK shared by 44% of people was that even though we live in what's called a democracy, a few people will always run things in this country anyway. I mean, if you include that as a conspiracy theory, like your, your report's completely undermined. But some of the worrying things that were in there... Um, the government is deliberately hiding the truth about how many immigrants really live in this country. 30% mm. of the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Muslim immigration is part of a bigger plan to make Muslims a majority of this country's population. Uh, so that's a conspiracy theory, which is drawn directly from the French far right. That's known as the Great Replacement. Mm. And that's believed by 18% of yeah. people. So, I mean, there's there are some things to take seriously in terms of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... I yeah, go on. Discourse on conspiracy theories in 2018. Yeah, go I mean, I, I, it always seems to me that that, that 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 it's worth drawing maybe, maybe not a sharp distinction, but a distinction between conspiracy theory proper and these these sort of paranoid beliefs, right? So, um, one of the things that's striking about conspiracy theory is that it, it's not about things that that haven't happened, right? It, it's mm. it's almost always about major events that definitely did happen. No one can test that JFK wasn't really shot in Dallas, right? The, the questions are about a form of public reasoning that say there's something wrong with the official narrative uh, and there are, you know, there are these inconsistencies. And it's often, you know, it has these kind of problematic forms of causal reasoning, of, you know, of failure, you know, of excluded middles, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, don't get me wrong. There is, there is, I think there's a specific form of conspiracy theory reasoning which tends almost invariably, um, to be pretty bad at, at actually getting to the truth. Um, nonetheless, what it tends to me to be indicative of is, is reflecting not so much what's actually going on, but what preoccupations there are among the populace. So I, mm. you know, this time last year, Michael and I were, were, were on this show and it was, we'd all been sort of snowed in and it was a bit of a disaster. So we improvised a show, actually a very good show. Um, but I, I mentioned my fondness for conspiracy theories uh, in terms of tracking what kind of public obsessions were over time. And I mentioned that, that I like, you know, the conspiracy theory of the 1990s, that there were these kind of enlightened aliens coming to Earth and they were being hidden from you by the repressive machinations of government, mm. were, were obviously to me much more attractive than the current sort of rather banal conspiracy theories about, you know, the Great Replacement or these kind of, you know, mm. the, you know deeply ethnicized fears. Mm. So, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, again, conspiracy theory, quite useful as a measure of uh, the, the, the kind of, the sense of the population. Um, obviously, for me, this year, uh, I've been thinking a bit about sovereignty. So, you know, again, links to the stuff I was saying earlier, but try to think about it because it's a concept that animates a lot of the leave vote. Um, you know, it, it, it's a question that relates to the state, how it works. Um, obviously, I've been thinking a bit about the relationship between capitalism and the nation state. So, for me, the collapse of Carillion was obviously a huge, huge part of this. Um, and, and it makes you realise that, that the, the, the links between the state and capital are so, so, so profound. And, and I think really over the course of the next year, we're going to have to start seriously thinking about sovereignty and uh, how you approach that concept from the left, whether it's a meaningless concept, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or, or whether, you know, where it comes from in, in terms of, you know, the way in which, one, it motivates people, but also the way in which it's a bit of a chimera, um, you know, when it comes to thinking about the relationship of sovereignty, um, you know, of, of, of a nation state to non-state actors. So paradigmatically, the, 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 the great sort of non-state actor that nonetheless asserts a kind of political sovereignty is the labour movement. Mm. The labour movement says, you know, you know, we, we, we constitute a sovereign body and we should be able to make decisions and own the things that are currently denied to us. In some sense, it's a state, you know, it's an assertion of sovereignty, but in some senses, it, it troubles that nation. So that's been a big issue for me this year. Let's talk about villains. villains. Dawn, who is your great villain of 2018? Leo Varadkar. Leo Varadkar. Leo Varadkar. Mm. Um, partly because, again, nobody understands Ireland in 
Britain. We don't understand what a villain he is. Yes. Well, a lot of people have seen him as as this kind of great saviour who's come and talked sense about Brexit over and over again. And actually, if you look at what he's doing domestically, yet again, you know, he's completely screwing over everybody. I mean, Ireland is currently seeing the worst housing crisis uh, in you know, living memory. Um, you know, you, you, like you, every night you have you have families sleeping in in kind of police waiting rooms because they've got nowhere to live. If you look at the places that are being rented out, especially in Dublin, because Dublin is you know the cost of living in Dublin has gone through mm. the roof. Um, you have the most ludicrous things being le- you know rented out with almost no. Um, way of stopping people from rent, you know, renting out really substandard accommodation. And they're doing very little to actually stop it. Um, and, you know, and, it, and Leah Vroker has basically abandoned uh, home policy to focus on kind of grandstanding in um, Brussels and, you know, and London. So he is my villain. He is your villain of 2018. Mm. I mean, I think that's, that is actually really striking that... that that, that there's no sense of actually, certainly in British reporting, um, how people feel about Varadka domestically uh, in Ireland is, is sort of just not there, mm, right? I mean, it's, it's like, this is going to be our great hero, ha, 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 he's going to help um, help us overturn Brexit or whatever. Michael, villain of 2018 for you. I mean, I feel a bit bad because it's a left-wing po- podcast, so to choose the Conservative Prime Minister is a little bit too easy, <laughs> but I'm going to go with <laughs> Theresa May. Uh, and... I mean, the reason is because I think to to end the year as she has done with sort of like the whole media establishment saying she's so brave, she's a stalwart. Mm. One thing she really cares about is a national interest and she really, you know, pummels through. That's a phrase, I'm not sure. Um, It is now. But uh, just coined it. But when you think, what was was the big scandal of this summer? It was the Windrush scandal, uh, which was how the hostile environment making life, making life intentionally difficult for people who would be perceived as migrants... Uh, to try and encourage people to leave of their own accord. That was a policy designed by her to intentionally make the life of people perceived as migrants difficult. So that ended up, obviously, as we all know, in people who'd come over as part of the Windrush generation from the Caribbean, not being allowed back into the country when they'd left or being denied housing, mm-hmm. being denied all the rights of citizenship, which which they were entitled to. Uh, what what happened? Amber Rudd had to fall on her sword. I mean, mm. I don't no no tears lost for her anyway. She's already been brought back into cabinet when mm. Theresa May felt like she needed a more solid ally. So so all has been forgiven. There was there was no political cost whatsoever for Theresa May in that. I think also this idea that she takes the she sort of weighs up all the options and and does what she believes. That's what she believes is in the best interest of the country. It's just, she always just takes the easiest option. <laughs> she, she, she does whatever. She takes the path of least resistance. So if, if you think when she first when she first became leader, she said, "I'm going to challenge all the great inequalities mm-hmm. of, of this country." It made sense to do that sort of pivot to one nation Toryism after Brexit. That was actually the easiest thing to say. What's difficult as a Tory prime minister is following through on any of that. Mm-hmm. And the moment she met the smallest amount of resistance she folded I mean probably because she doesn't really care about the great inequalities of Britain but she's a fraud yes, mm. yes. Um, so she's your great villain of 2018 who's yours James mine is the boss of Shell CEO Ooh. of Shell a guy called Ben Van Burden um, who came out and I don't know if you remember it, there was a headline in October of this year saying Shell boss says we need to plant a rainforest the size of the Amazon uh, and I was like, oh, that's, it. that's nice. A bit weird from the boss of Shell, mm-hmm. but, you know, whatever. And then you, you read down the story and you've, you've got him saying like, oh, you know, we're going to go into renewables um, a bit. And then uh, said to his shareholders, actually, it's n- we're not going soft on oil and gas. Quote, this means Shell's core business is and will be for the foreseeable future very much in oil and gas. And the thing that this highlighted to me, and the thing that, that has struck me, and you know, obviously I've talked a bit about climate change on this show because I do think it, it is for me actually the, the ongoing anxiety from 2018 that I will carry into 2019 is about mm. climate change. And, and it just seems to me that, that one, you know, uh, you know, so, so the, the great statistics, famous statistics, 70% of emissions come from just 100 companies. Um, these people are killing us, mm. these people are killing the planet. They have names and addresses. Responsibility is not as diffuse through society as is often argued. We have power. We will have power. And we should use it to end these companies. Tukor. 
<laughs> and on that note, uh, we're going to leave it for this year. This has been Navarra FM 2018. I have been Wait. James Butler. Uh, thank you to my guest, Michael Dawn, and thank you to everyone here at Resonance FM for making it such a delight to do this show. Uh, this has been Navarra FM. This has been 2018. See you in the new year. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.